We're studying this morning John chapter 16. The Gospel according to John is one of four biographies at the heart of the Bible. And it is called the Gospel according to John because it is really good news. It's the best news in the world. The term gospel means good news. And uh, this is an eyewitness report that claims that Jesus, the man whom John knew and lived several years with, was none other than God become man, who had the power to create. He had the power to raise the dead, in fact, raise himself from the dead. So he has the authority and the power to forgive sin. He has the power and the authority to not only raise those who are dead, but entirely remake all of creation. And John, for 12 chapters, reported at least seven miracles. He called them signs because they signify who Jesus is. And then beginning with chapter 13, he recounts pretty much the second half of the book. It's about a 24-hour period in Jesus' life. It begins with the Passover meal he eats with his disciples in John chapter 13, and that meal begins with Jesus scrubbing his disciples' dirty feet, very symbolically. And Jesus gives this farewell address as they're in that upper room around the table, and he urges them to love one another, love one another, just like I've loved you. And chapter 19 is going to see him on the cross. Again, that's less than 24 hours from the time they eat this meal. So he recounts years of Jesus' ministry over the first 12 chapters and says, believe him, he is God's appointed ruler for this planet. Believe him, commit your life to him. And then the last chapters, he slows way down, zooms in on a 24-hour period of Jesus' life. He says, look at the love of Jesus for you. Be transformed by it. Love like he loved. Receive his love. Reflect his love. We're studying a chapter that's right in the middle of that 24-hour period, right before he's arrested and crucified. It's actually the last words that he speaks on this night to his disciples before he goes and prays for them and prays. He wants to pray with them in the garden, but they fall asleep. It's the last words of counsel he gives. That's what John 16 is. And we must keep in mind that what we read here occurs just a few hours before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial. We're right on the eve of that. John 16, we read, Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, this is true throughout history. It's true today. It's what we've been reading in the papers in Afghanistan. The worst and most persistent Persecution against Christians comes from people who think they're doing God's service. And I must say, there have been many times in history where those who profess to be Christians do the same. It's horrible. And 
They will do these things, verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, proving that I truly am the righteous one, and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged by what I'm about to do. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take what's mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he'll take what's mine and declare it to you. You can see the truth here of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all working in union with one another. God is three persons in one being. There is no other like him. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, triune. Our God is triune. And Jesus is saying when he leaves, he is going to leave the Spirit, God the Spirit, with his disciples. Verse 16, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what's he saying to us? A little while, and you'll not see me, and again a little while, and you'll see me? Because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking among yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you'll see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me like you have through the last three years. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech, a little cloudy, as it were. 
But the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. It's not like you need me to kind of convince the Father. No, 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 no. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. And I came from the Father and have come into the world and am now leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them. Notice his pushback. It's incredible. He says, do you really now believe? He knows that they think, okay, we got it. They think they're strong when actually they're weak and every one of them is about to fail miserably, like within an hour or two. Jesus says, verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you're going to be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What a statement of authority. It's here in John 16 that Jesus concludes his words of counsel and comfort to his disciples. It's the end of his farewell address that he spoke on this night before he is arrested and crucified. His primary concern for his disciples throughout this entire address on this night is that they would be marked by strong and persevering faith in him, conviction that he is the Son of Man, the Creator become human. That they would not only be marked by strong, persevering faith, but also by strong, persevering love for him, for one another, and for the world. I want you to look again at verse 16. It's here in the 16th chapter that Jesus wraps it all up and he says, you guys are about to scatter and your hearts are going to be filled with sorrow, but I want you to know that your sorrow is soon going to turn to joy. These are his last words. Your sorrow is going to turn to joy. And it's in verse 16 where he says this thing that trips up the disciples. A little while and you'll see me no longer. That little while, that little while, refers to a period of time that's less than 24 hours. In a little while, you're going to see me no longer. For some of these disciples, it would be just two hours before they see him arrested in the garden, and they run, and they don't see him again until the other side of the weekend when he's raised from the dead. For some of them, they're not going to see him after about two hours. Some of them are going to fail miserably while trying to catch a glimpse of him from one of the courtyards during his trial. John is going to come back around and from a distance, he's going to observe what's going on at the crucifixion. Some of them are going to see him just a little while longer, but then he's going to be buried and they will not see him. And Jesus is anticipating this time that in just a few hours, in just a little while, they're not going to see him anymore. And then he went on to say in that same verse, and again a little while, and you will see me. In verse 20, 
he went further. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. All those who tried to put me to death, all those who did put me to death, they're going to rejoice. They're going to be thankful that I'm dead. You're going to be sorrowful. They're going to be filled with joy. And then he says, but there's going to be a great reversal. Your sorrow is going to be turned to joy. In verse 21, he likens it to a pregnant woman who experiences for hours. Some of you have experienced for more than 24 hours horrible labor pains. And then a child is born. And you're holding your baby in your arms. And somehow, your sorrow is turned to a joy that outshines all the sorrow that you endured to bring that baby into the world. Jesus says, your sorrow turned to joy is going to be a little bit like that. He repeats in verse 22, So also you sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. I love this. I think it's really central to the chapter. There at the end of verse 22, he says, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus assured them that in a little while, they'd sorrow. And then again, a little while after that, their sorrow would be turned to joy. Of course, he's anticipating his resurrection, that he's going to walk out of the tomb alive. So that when Jesus says, your sorrow is going to be turned to joy, joy that will never, ever be taken away from you, he means something like this. He means those who follow the risen king experience a joy that no one can take. Those who follow the risen king experience a joy that no one can take. Joy is permanent for those who follow the risen king. In fact, joy is going to undergird us through every sorrow. Peace is going to protect us in every persecution. And triumph, the assurance that Jesus has overcome the world and will overcome the world, this assurance of triumph will be with us through every temptation. This is the message that Jesus gives, the conclusion, these words of counsel and comfort to his disciples. And we, who are Jesus' disciples today, who live a long time after the resurrection, still experience What Jesus promised these disciples they would. Look back at verse 2. Persecution and tribulation. Some people are going to put you to death thinking they're doing God's service. Jesus says even since his resurrection, disciples experience sorrow, persecution, threats of the world. And yet he says, in the middle of all of these attacks you can be marked by an overwhelming sense of joy and peace because of Jesus' victory. There is a joy underneath every sorrow. That's the message of John 16. Christians, is this too good to be true? Is there really joy underneath every sorrow? Some of you are struggling to believe this this morning. Do you know what, during the time of sorrow that these disciples experienced over the next few days? They didn't learn this. They're terrified. They're in the middle of the sorrows that Jesus said would come. 
And what they're experiencing is fear. We are like them so often. How do you experience joy underneath all the sorrow? How do you stomp down, as it were, in your heart and feel the foundation under you and say, I'm grieving right now, but there's joy underneath? How do you feel that? How do you experience that? Well, Jesus actually gives at least three ways that I see in this chapter. There are three ways that Christians experience underneath all of their sorrow, joy. And the first is this. We remember that we're not alone. Verses 8 through 11, Jesus emphasizes that after he's crucified, risen, and ascended, his disciples are going to have the Spirit's help in their ministry. They're going to have the Spirit's help as they go about trying to convince the world that the world needs Jesus. You see that in verses 8 through 11, Jesus says, The helper will come. We're going to have the strong support and assistance of the Spirit of God. As verse 8 puts it, it is the Spirit who is actually going to help us by convicting the world of three things. Of sin. He's going to convict us that we're rebels. That we want to be our own authority. We know that there's a God out there. We know it instinctively, simply from the design of creation. There is a great God who made me. And yet, I want to be the king of my own life. I want to call the shots. All we like sheep go astray. We're wayward. And the Spirit assists disciples, as it were, as they spread the message of the gospel, saying, you need Jesus. You're a sinner. You're a rebel. You want to be your own authority, and you're not made like that. You're resisting the authority of the God who made you. The Spirit also convicts the world of righteousness. You say, convict of righteousness? Yeah, I think, along with others, that he's describing a self-righteousness. You think about all the people who are rejoicing as Jesus is buried. The scribes and the Pharisees. We got rid of Jesus. The Pharisees thought of themselves as the holy ones. And they're putting to death Jesus, the holy one. Well, the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside the disciples and convince all those who think they're righteous that they're not and they need Jesus. That Jesus, in fact, is the righteous one and they need his righteousness That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the world. And he is going to convince the world, thirdly, that they're under God's judgment if they don't trust Jesus, the one who conquered the grave. The one who conquered every foe, including Satan himself. I have two simple applications before we move on to the next way that joy undergirds every sorrow. The two applications are pretty simple, and the first is this. You need to, if you haven't yet, acknowledge that you're a rebel against God by nature. That you're a sinner. And you need to acknowledge that your attempts at righteousness get you nowhere with God. 
So many people in our culture think, well, if my good works just outweigh my bad works, I'll be okay. Does that work in a courtroom? Has that ever worked in a courtroom? Good works don't outweigh bad works. You need someone else's righteousness. You need God to credit to your personal account Jesus' perfection. This is what everyone needs. And you need to realize that until you flee to Jesus, until you trust in Jesus, until you commit your life to him, you're under God's judgment. It's serious. Some of you are going to be sitting in bed, maybe Friday or Saturday night. You're going to be chewing on this. And you're going to be saying, I'm a rebel. I really do want to be my own authority. I think what that guy was saying on Sunday, I think, I think there might be something to it. And around Christmas time, you're going to go through the motions of a church service. You're going to observe the Mass. A guy who calls himself a priest is going to put a little wafer on your tongue and say, this is his body. This is the body of Christ. In that moment, you're going to be hollow. You're going to be like, is there anything to this? Somewhere around the new year, you're going to be thinking like, God, I've always thought of you as like liking me and being on my side, but if I am a sinner and I've done a lot of things to rebel against you, I don't think things are looking very good for me. And do you know why you'll be experiencing those thoughts? It'll be because I have a helper who's a whole lot stronger than me. It's not because I'm a strong guy. It's because the Spirit is in the world convincing the world of their rebellion, of their empty attempts at righteousness saying you're under God's judgment and you need Jesus. The Spirit's in the world to do that. Some of you in here have been exploring Christianity for a while. Some of you think you are Christians and you're saying, boy, I think the way Jesus is talking, maybe I'm not. You know that you can be saved today. You can be forgiven of your guilt before God and a righteousness credited to your personal account if you will admit that you're a rebel and that your attempts at righteousness get you nowhere, that you're under judgment, and you call out to Jesus who died bearing your punishment and say, Jesus, forgive me, save me, I commit my life to you. You know that you can be rescued today well, you won't have joy underneath all of your sorrow until then. My second application is to Christians. We must, Christians, realize that we are not alone when we experience opposition in this world. When we tell others about Jesus, this is not only our obligation, it's our delight, it's the way we show love to other people when we tell them that Jesus is God become man, that he was crucified bearing the punishment that our sins deserve, that he rose from the dead, that he's returning to reign as king on earth, 
when we share the gospel, this is a wonderful privilege. We must remember that we're not alone. Too many Christians think that sharing the gospel with other people is scary. Too many Christians think, oh boy, people are going to hate me. Do you know that you're not alone? You have the helper with you. You can be courageous as you speak the best news in the world. Second, we read the Bible. Christians read the Bible. This is the second way that we experience joy underneath all of our sorrows. That is, verses 12 through 15 say that we have the Spirit who produced the truth that explains who Jesus is and what he's done. Look at these verses in detail. Verse 13 says that the Spirit, Jesus assures, will guide you into all the truth. In other words, he's going to lead these disciples who are with him on this night to understand and be able to articulate exactly who Jesus is and what he's done. He's going to help you make sense of me. Verse 14 says, the Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. I think he means that the Spirit is going to help you understand the significance of the things that are about to take place. My crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. And then he says in verses 14 and 15, the Spirit is going to take what is mine, all the things about me, and he's going to speak it to you. Now, we have to realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here, okay? Step back from this. What is Jesus saying? Well, he is promising here that these very disciples will finish writing the climactic conclusion to the Bible. It's what we call the New Testament. Jesus is saying, you guys are going to unpack who I am and what I've done, and why that matters. And you're going to do it truthfully, accurately. You're going to explain who I am and what I've done. And it's the Spirit who's going to lead you to do it. He is going to make sure that what you write about me is the truth. Wow. We need to realize that the entire Bible beginning with Genesis, was produced as the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter says. The Holy Spirit carried along the people as they wrote the Bible. So the Bible is just like Jesus in the sense that it is fully human and fully divine. You say, did people write this book? Yes. Did God write this book? Yes. Fully human, fully divine. As Moses wrote Exodus. And as David wrote many of the Psalms. And as Solomon penned Proverbs and Isaiah penned Isaiah. These men were writing, but the Holy Spirit was was carrying them along so that every single word they penned, in fact, every jot and tittle they penned, as Jesus put it, was the very word of God. This is the Bible. And these disciples would write the New Testament. It's interesting here that Jesus says, verse 14, 
God the Spirit will glorify me. God the Spirit will glorify God the Son. That indicates something really helpful for all of us about the Bible. So many people have this idea that the Bible's a history book. The Bible's a rule book. The Bible's filled with a lot of practical wisdom about life. Uh Uh-uh. That's not really the main thing the Bible is. The Bible does have commandments. It's filled with wisdom. And it's filled with history. The Bible's about Jesus. God the Spirit was carrying along the authors so that what they wrote magnified God the Son. When you read Genesis, you should read the preparation for Jesus. And when you read the New Testament, what Matthew wrote, what Peter wrote, what Paul wrote, they're explaining who Jesus is, what he did, and why it matters for our lives. The Bible's a book about Jesus. The Spirit produced it so that we would have the truth about Jesus. So I come back to application again, and I say, Christians, do you want joy that undergirds every sorrow? All of us do. Jesus promised that it would be yours. How? Well, first you have to remember that you're not alone. God the Spirit is with you. Secondly, you must read the Bible. The Bible is the very word of God. It is truth. You should spend more time in front of the Bible than you spend in front of the TV. Fill your mind with what's true. I'm not saying don't watch TV. There's a lot of good diverting and recreational stories, documentaries, fictional things that speak truth about the world. It's good, good, good. But fill your mind with truth. Let the Bible saturate you with love for Jesus, accurate knowledge of Jesus. Let it continue to to stir up within you, to feed your faithfulness to Jesus. Let it increase your longing for Jesus. The Bible is true. And it will assure you over and over again, if you let its words saturate you, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that he is God's chosen king to rule on this planet, that he was crucified for you because he loved you, that he's risen again, and he can conquer death, and he will rid this planet of every vestige of the curse. If you read the Bible, you will be continually saturated with that truth. And it'll undergird every sorrow of yours with joy. Third and lastly, we pray continually. This is verses 23 to 28. We have access to the love of God through Jesus. And Jesus specifically describes this in terms of our relationship with God through prayer. On this dark night, he's encouraging his disciples. And if you read chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's encouraging them constantly to pray. He's then going to model prayer for them in the next chapter. And he's continually said, if you pray to God the Father in my name... He's going to answer you. And here, verses 23 and 24 specifically, he says, after my death and resurrection and ascension, 
Disciples are going to pray to the Father in my name. He says it twice. This is one of the reasons that Christian prayer often ends in Jesus' name, amen. But what Jesus is describing, Christians, some of you are like feeling really good, and you're like, yeah, I always end my prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm getting ready to go after you, okay? What Jesus is describing is not some magical formula like abracadabra. Say these three words in Jesus' name before you finish your prayer and all your wishes will be granted. That is not what Jesus is saying. Put it simply, when Jesus commands his disciples to ask in my name, he's urging us to make requests of God through his death. You are approaching, accessing God through the way that I've provided. You are doing so on the basis of his authority and under submission to his authority. You are doing so in keeping with the mission that Jesus has in the world to save sinners, that the gospel would advance. And you are doing so in the warmth of Jesus' love, knowing that all who are in Christ experience the same love of God the Father for Jesus for themselves. In other words, when you say, in Jesus' name, do you understand what it means? Are you using it just kind of like a magical incantation? Please don't. If you want joy in the middle of sorrow, you need to actually pray in Jesus' name. Do you pray this way? I want to encourage you to maybe tweak the ends of your prayers, believers, or as our founding pastor used to say, maybe begin your prayers in Jesus' name. Tweak the end of your prayers so that you're praying like Jesus is commanding here. I give you a couple examples. And I mean every one of these things that I pray. Father, I pray that you would help me in fighting the anger in my life. Help me put anger to death in my life. I know this is your will. And I pray this, and I'm using the phrase that my pastor in college used to use. I pray this, God, that you would help me put anger to death in my life in Jesus' name and in keeping with the mission that the name Jesus reveals, that Jesus is here to save me from my sins, so God help me to put anger to death in my life. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Or you might say, Father, I pray that you would comfort the Fultons in this time of loss. Help their faith not to fail. And I pray this, Father, knowing that you fully love them because Jesus died for Ron. I know you love him. And I know you love me as I'm praying this for them, all because of Jesus. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Assured that Jesus has brought you into the love of the Father. Do you pray like that? If you pray like that regularly, you will experience joy underneath your sorrow. Or this morning we pray, God, my Father, 
I pray that you would sustain the persecuted believers in the underground churches of North Korea and Afghanistan. Lord, I pray that you would help these persecuted believers not give up. And I pray that you would make the gospel advance among unbelievers in these hard places. May the blood of the martyrs truly be the seed of the church. And I ask this, Father, with all boldness, because I come to you in the authority of Jesus. You see, I didn't pray in Jesus' name, the exact words, but I prayed in Jesus' name on the basis of the authority that he's given me to come and make my big requests for 100,000 believers in North Korea. We come on the authority of Jesus. When you continually pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, God will undergird all of your sorrow with joy. We who follow the crucified and risen King can now live in the power of the Spirit. And even though we experience many sorrows still today, we can experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace. Sound like John 16? The Spirit will produce love and joy and peace in the lives of disciples who keep on trusting what the Scripture says, that the crucified, risen, and returning King is, in fact, mine.